Searching for just the right job? Whether you're looking for full-time, part-time, or seasonal work, you can get started today. Amazon Jobs offer the whole package with great pay and flexible shifts that allow you to choose when and how much you work. Find a warehouse close to home and discover the role that works for you. To get your application started for an hourly job, go to Amazon.com slash apply. That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is proud to be an equal opportunity employer. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. The Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Rob McConnell's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the Exxon Radio Show or endorsed in any manner by Rob McConnell, Relmar McConnell Media Company, the Exxon Broadcast Network, its affiliated networks, stations, employees, or advertisers. All-Hit Radio! Welcome to the X-Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. And welcome to the X-Zone, everyone. My name is Rob McConnell. We're coming to you from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. If you'd like to give us a call, toll-free, it's 1-800-610-7035. Email exxon at com on MSN Messenger, TV at hotmail.com, and our website, com. My guest this hour is Richard Freeman, and we've had the pleasure of having Richard on the show before. He's a, I guess we can say, a well-endowed member of the Exxon Nation. He is a cryptozoologist, author, zoological journalist, and web TV presenter. He is also zoological director of the Center for Fertian Zoology and co-edits both the journal Animal and Men and several editions of the annual CFZ yearbook. Richard has written, co-written, or edited a number of books and has contributed widely to both Fortean and zoological magazines, as well as other newspapers and periodicals, including the Fortean Times and Paranormal Magazine. He has also lectured across the UK at such events as Fortean Times Unconvention, The Weird Weekend, and at museums such as the National History Museum, the Grant Museum of Natural History, and the Last Tuesday Society. Now, he's taken a number of expeditions around the world in search of the unknown animals, including, now just listen to some of these, Exxonation. In 2000, uh, in 2000, he went to Thailand to look for a species of a giant crested snake known as the Naga. In 2003, Sumatra to search for an upright walking ape called Orange Pendic. Again in uh, Sumatra in 2004 to look again for the Orange Pendic. 2005, he went to Mongolia on the track of the Mongolian death worm. In 2006, uh, the Gambia to search for a dragon-like beast known as Nenki Nanka. 
Joining me now from his home in the beautiful British Isles, the United Kingdom, is Richard Freeman. And Richard, welcome back to the Exxon. Great having you with us. Nice to be here, Ralph. My goodness, you, you are so busy. Uh, uh, what are you, what's new? I guess that's the main question. What is new? Well, I, I recently returned from my, from my fourth expedition to Sumatra in search mm-hmm. of the Orang Pendek, the upright walking ape that was mentioned earlier. And while we were over there, not only did we talk to witnesses, we found some hair. Mm-hmm. And for the first time ever, we found a handprint. Ooh. And this has been cast by one of my colleagues uh, in, um, in quick-drying dental cement. And we've got a handprint for the first time of this mysterious ape. And the hairs we found have all been sent off for analysis to various laboratories. So we're waiting with bated breath. And at the minute I'm working, I'm virtually mm-hmm. finished my... Uh, new book on this, this uh, unknown ape, which should be out in a, a couple of weeks. Wow. Tell, tell me, Richard, with all the modern technology we have available to us these days, including predator drones, uh, satellites that can read the, the uh, headlines off of a person who's reading a newspaper at a bus stand, how can we still have so many mysteries on this great, beautiful planet of ours? Well, one, one reason that springs to mind immediately is that even satellite cameras can't go through the uh, the canopy of a rainforest. Mm, and Sumatra, which is a large island in Indonesia, uh, sixth largest island in the world, a, a lot of it is rainforest. And the place we're looking at, Kerinci Sablak National Park in the west of Sumatra, is the size of a small country. And it's a very dense rainforest. Mm-hmm. And even I, who's been there four times now, uh, even I have, have only been around the edges. Very few people go deep into the interior. Richard, stand by, my friend. You and I have to take our first commercial break. We'll be back in two minutes. Exo Nation, Richard Freeman is our special guest to this hour. www.cfz.org.uk. We'll be back on the other side of this two-minute commercial break as the Exxon continues with yours truly, Rob McConnell, from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. Take a step back in time and discover old Florida cuisine at Marsh Landing Restaurant in Felsmere. Enjoy delicacies such as frog legs, gator tail, catfish, and swamp cabbage, or enjoy the more traditional cuisine like hand-cut Angus steaks, ribs, and seafood. Join us for breakfast with a southern flair featuring sweet potato pancakes, biscuits and gravy, and much more. Planning a party? Marsh Landing's private dining room can accommodate groups from 8 to 80 people. While you're visiting, enjoy the historic pictures, artifacts, and stories that line the walls. Marsh Landing is truly a unique experience. Marsh Landing Restaurant, 44 North Broadway in historic Felsmere. Or visit marshlandingrestaurant.com. Marsh Landing, old Florida cuisine at its best. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone radio show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the X-Zone broadcast network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 
401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. We all desire health, happiness, and fulfillment, but often get in our own way. Repeated patterns that leave us out of control can keep us feeling powerless, frustrated, and unable to move forward in spite of our best efforts. Unconscious patterning disconnects us from our gifts, often destroying the very thing we seek. But there is an answer. We can take charge of our destiny and heal the trauma of our history. Shamanism is an effective ancient modality that can reconnect us with our true selves, empower the creation of our dreams, and return us to health and balance. Cody Alexander is a certified shamanic practitioner and teacher with 11 years experience. Email HealingPathways33 at gmail.com or visit CodyAlexander.net to schedule a long-distance shamanic session today. And welcome back, everyone. Richard Freeman is our special guest this hour, www.cfz.org.uk. Richard, um, where, in your opinion, is the most adventurous place that you have been on one of your many expeditions? Goodness, that, that's a good question. Um, the place that I think was the most remote, the most alien-looking, and the most bizarre mm-hmm. was Mongolia. Uh, the place where um, I nearly died four times uh, was for the Caucasus Mountains in Russia. Oh, my heavens. How, what happened? Well, <coughs> I mean, sure. uh, we were going up a mountain to look for the alleged carcass of an Almaski, which is a hairy, man-like beast, mm-hmm. uh, much more human-like than either the Yeti or the Sasquatch, uh, possibly a offshoot of Homo erectus. Uh, we, were, we were looking for an alleged body of one, and the man who was taking us up said it was just a little half-an-hour walk up the mountain, and he was wearing, like, um, loafers <laughs> and a shirt. So we thought, oh, it can't be very arduous, because we brought with us you know, boots and climbing equipment and things. But we followed this fellow up, this mountain, Kushkalash it was called, and we kept getting higher and higher and higher to, to the snow line. And then I saw a big boulder. And on the boulder were various photographs and portraits, and I had a closer look. Mm-hmm. And it was lots of people who died on this mountain that was appallingly dangerous. And this guy had taken, taken us up there without any equipment. And uh, we were trekking up to try and find this body, which we never did find, and probably never actually existed. Um, I, I fell down a, a, a cr- an ice crevasse, and I very nearly tumbled 300 feet to my death. I, I narrowly missed uh, going down a precipice by jamming my boots against some rocks and scree and stopping myself. Oh, On the yes. way back down, I got lost, uh, separated from the rest of the group, and then I was walking along a cliff that was gouged out by a retreating glacier and part of the cliff collapsed and left me hanging off a tree root uh, in the style of Indiana Jones. Huh. And uh, on the same expedition, I also nearly got um, washed away by rapids in a river. So, uh, so Russia really had mm-hmm. it in for me. But uh, if you're talking about the wildest, most remote place, it was Mongolia. What is the story behind the Mongolian deathworm? <coughs> well, the local people were nomads. They call it Alroy Hoi Hoi. 
which translates as intestine worm. Mm. And it's supposed to look like a length of cow's intestine uh, lies in the sand. It, it lives beneath uh, the Gobi Desert and comes up from May through to September. Now, when the stories of it reach the West, it's been so exaggerated, it, it sounds like a monster out of Doctor Who. It can spit a corrosive yellow saliva yeah. that, that acts like acid. It can generate blasts of electricity and it's killed people and camels and all sorts of things. When you actually go and talk to the nomads, their stories are much more sober. They say, uh, with the electricity, they call it throwing lightning. They say that's purely folklore. Uh. They do believe it's poisonous and it can mm -hmm. spit. They say it's about two feet long, shaped like a salami, scaly, reddish-brown coloured, that lives in the desert, and they're terrified of it. A whole communities will take their gurs, their, their collapsible circular tents and their livestock, and move out of an area if, uh, if they see a death worm. But nobody knew anybody who'd actually been killed by it or even saw it spitting. Uh, a lot of people we talked to had seen it, and mostly they'd seen it just lying in the desert, and they left it well alone. One man saw it devouring a mouse, and another woman saw it slithering in and out of hole. It sounds like some sort of burrowing reptile, so it's probably either an undiscovered species of sand boa or an undiscovered species of worm lizard. Mm. I think that the poison and the spitting and everything else is apocryphal. There's a type of sand boa that uh, lives in Somalia today, and the local people in Somalia and Africa call it the apris, and they believe it's so deadly it doesn't even have to bite you to kill you. All you have to do is touch it and you'll fall down dead. In fact, it's a completely harmless animal. So I think something similar is happening with the death worm. Richard, are we any closer to proving once and for all that Bigfoot is real? Bigfoot, I think um, we're going to get that by look rather than anything else. I think one is going to blunder out in front of a lorry, exit mm -hmm. lorry, exit driver, exit Bigfoot. I think that's the way it's going to be, going to be proven. Uh, what does surprise me about Bigfoot is that nobody's brought one in yet. Yeah. Because in, in, in the US in particular, there are a lot of gun nuts. There are a lot of people with twitchy triggers. Yeah, that, that is... I, I often wonder why haven't they brought one in yet. It's not like the Himalayas or Tibet, where there's virtually mm -hmm. nobody there and there's great forests and mountains where no one ever goes. A lot of these woods in, in, in the US are, are hunting season, are, are crammed full of uh, Almafood-type characters with big guns. Mm -hmm. So why haven't they brought one in? Yeah, it's, I find it rather amazing that after all these years, and even with the <laughs> with all the digital cameras and, and all the forest rangers, the, the members of uh, law enforcement that work in the forest, the foresters themselves, and the people who are actually going out and looking for Bigfoot, nobody's come back with that all-proof-bearing smoking gun photo. Mm. That's why I would... If I'm financing an expedition myself, I'd mm -hmm. rather I'd rather concentrate on the Asian Nandis, yeah. like uh, the Yeti, Elmasti, the Orangtendek. Now, because, uh, I think the evidence for them is somewhat more compelling. Somebody was talking to me about something called a yokai or yoki. The yokai. Yokai. Uh, yokai <coughs> are a different cattle fish. They are broadly speaking monsters and ghosts the folklore of Japan, oh. which really does have the most insane, weird, eccentric and bizarre folklore of any country on the planet. So a yokai, uh, it can be anything from a dog with shape-shifting testicles <laughs> to um, a huge <laughs> dragon miles and miles long. 
Only on the X-Zone would you ever hear a phrase that has shape-shifting testicles and the word dog in the same sentence. They're called, um, uh, these particular things are called tanukis or raccoon dogs. And they're a real animal. They actually exist. They're a small breed of wild dog found throughout Asia. And they have somewhat raccoon-like markings, although they're not closely related to raccoons. In the mythology of Japan, uh, they, they have shape-shifting testicles, which they can use as weapons. And in one story, they like to play tricks on human beings. In one story, a tanuki transformed his testicles into a tea shop where two men sat drinking. And they only found out they were inside a tanuki's testicles. And one of them dropped some hot ash from his uh, pipe mm-hmm. onto the floor and burnt the tanuki's testicles. Do you believe that? Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great story. Yeah, so tell what, me. What is it about Japan? They, they are, yeah. I love the Japanese. They, they have just the weirdest, strangest folklore of, of any nation on the planet. And that's why um, I wrote a, a book called The Great Yokai Encyclopedia, which is an encyclopedia of all these bizarre creatures, which range from things which could have a basis in truth, like um, sightings of marine dragons, which could be linked with sea serpents, uh, all the way through to these really bizarre things like um, like there's a creature called Murayu, mm-hmm. which is a giant upright walking flesh eating rabbit that digs up corpses from graveyards and, and eats their livers and the only way to destroy it is to stake it through them through the neck with a stake made out of oak. Well so why are there so many weird folklores coming out of Japan? Well that's one of the questions that I address in the book. Um, I think the answer to it is is we have to look into Japan's history. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a place that's had a a lot of mixing of religions. Uh, The Chinese uh, went over there, I think it was in the 4th century, and they recorded some of the early people there living in mound-like structures where there was a priestess that no one would see and she would commune with the gods. And one man would go in and talk to her and she communed with the gods and then gave the information to this man who gave it to the tribe. And that's where we might get the goddess of the rising sun in the, in the, the modern pantheon of, of Japanese gods and goddesses from. Uh, we have the Ainu, which are the, the original aborigines of, of um, Japan. They have their own religion, which is, which is um, very animist, and mm-hmm. they, they worship bears. Um, and they were, they were forced out and marginalised by the modern Japanese who came in from mainland Asia, and they brought um, Shinto with them, which is a, a religion that has a lot of ancestor worship and spirit worship, and there's no sort of central gods and goddesses. And then we've got the um, Buddhism on top of that as well. So we've got this melange of different belief systems. And one thing that happens when a, a religion becomes dominant, it will often either absorb or demonize the deities of the previous religion. I've seen this before in in, in other places. So many of these bizarre creatures Mm -hmm. uh, may have been actual deities or spirits from one of the earlier religions, the Tengu, the bird men, uh, which are very prevalent in in Japanese legend. Uh, They apparently have their um, genesis back with, uh, with Shinto, and even further than that, they may have been some sort of animist, bird worship of the very early people in, in Japan. And you've got to remember, Japan became literary, uh, literate very, very early. They got the printing press and things like that. So, mm-hmm. so I think it's this mixture of different religions and different beliefs and the creatures therein uh, of 
made this bizarre menagerie of these things called yokai. When it comes to uh, Asia, the Yeti, is it real? Is it a myth? Is it a legend? Is it a folklore? It's almost certainly real. Really? It's one of the most believable of all the man beasts, and one of the most poorly understood. Uh, <clears throat> the man in the street, if you ask him about the Yeti, he'll probably think it's a white-furred creature that lives up in the snows, and it's sort of like a cross between a gorilla and a polar bear. Mm-hmm. Nothing could be further from the truth. There's never been a sighting of a white Yeti, ever. Uh, the, the fur of the Yeti is black, um, chestnut brown, reddish brown, never ever white. It doesn't live in the snow, it lives in the forest. There's nothing up above the snow line for it to eat. Uh, stories of the Yeti go back way into the mists of time. And um, in China, where it's known as the Yeren, or wild man, some hairs were procured in uh, the 1980s. Mm-hmm. They were analysed uh, in three separate laboratories, and it all came up with the same answer, unknown primate. All right, you and I have to take our commercial break. We'll be right back after the news. Richard Freeman is our guest. My name is Rob McConnell, and this is The Exxon, coming to you from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone radio show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. There's a legend shared by many indigenous cultures of a time when the nations were cast to the four corners of the world. Each nation was given a body of sacred knowledge that held a different portion of the truth to preserve. True reality could not be known until all the nations reunited, combining the information. If a single one was missing, the world could not be reborn and darkness would prevail. The Science of Magic Radio is dedicated to reuniting the sacred knowledge. With the understanding, none of us has all the answers, but together we can open new perceptions and possibilities. Through our combined vision, the world can be reborn into a place where darkness no longer prevails. Join me, Gwilda Wiecka, and the Science of Magic daily on the Exxon Broadcast Network, xzbn.net, or visit us at thescienceofmagic.net.
Exxon Nation, uh, Richard Freeman is our special guest this hour. His website is www.cfz.org.uk. Richard, I, I've always wanted to ask you this, and I, I just uh, found a little note in the uh, in our files. Uh, what is your opinion of the Patterson film, the Patterson-Gimlin uh, Sasquatch film? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I'm fairly skeptical about Sasquatch. Mm-hmm. But the, the Patterson film is, is one of those things that really gives me pause for thought. Uh, because of the, the, the structure of the animal, the, um, the muscular structure, and the, way, and the way it moves. Now, it's a female. It has large, pendulous breasts. So the first question you've got to ask is, if these guys are faking um, a Sasquatch, they've got their monkey costume, they've got their actor, where in the equation do they think, oh, I'm going to stick a big pair of hairy kits on it? Hmm. Why would they do that? That's insane. Uh, the other thing is that most, in fact, all of the known apes, the females, have flat chests. They don't have pendulum breasts like human females. And that's because apes are knuckle walkers, the known apes anyway, great hmm. apes, they, they move on all fours. Now, one of the reasons that human females have pendulous breasts is to do with buttock muscles. If you're walking erect, you need buttock muscles. And human females have wider hips because of the birth canal. Mm-hmm. So they have larger, rounded buttocks than men. Now, to counterbalance this, the breasts became pendulous. So a hypothetical upright-walking ape would have pendulous breasts. And I don't think um, Patterson and Gimlin would have known that that tidbit about ape and human anatomy. Hmm. Also, when it stops and looks round... It looks at them. It doesn't turn its head. It turns the whole upper half of its body. And apes can't turn their necks very far because their necks are so short and their shoulders are so massive. So if it was a man in a suit, I think he would have just turned around and looked with his head. But this thing turns the whole upper upper half of the body. And I've never yet seen a replication of that with a costume that looks anything like so good, as good as that. And I've worked with apes. I used to be a zookeeper. Mm-hmm. I've worked with gorillas, orangutans, chimps, and... And this thing has the presence of an ape. When you look at it, you think ape. You don't think man in a monkey suit. I'll get the same feeling for looking at it as I've got the same feeling as looking at gorillas. In your opinion, if you were responsible for the world's research on unknown mysteries, or you know, for example, the uh, the Mongolian death worm or the orang pendic, what's what is the creature that you would? direct all the resources at your disposal to to investigate, to prove one way or another its existence? There are two that I think are on the very cusp of discovery. Mm-hmm. There are the thylacine, or marsupial wolf of Tasmania and Australia. Now, we know that existed. It existed on mainland Australia, New Guinea, and Tasmania. And it was thought to have died out on the mainland, about 2,000 years ago, although recent evidence suggests it was still around in Victorian times. On Tasmania, <coughs> the last one was supposed, it supposedly died in Hobart Zoo in 1936. But it's been called the healthiest extinct animal you'll ever see because not only has it been sighted over a 1,000 times mm-hmm. on Tasmania, New Guinea and mainland Australia, it's been sighted by zoologists and a park warden, a park ranger, I've also seen some fairly convincing film of this creature as well. So 
So that would be the pony to back. And if I had the money, I would be out there looking for that. Uh, the Orangpen deck, I mean, a friend of mine on our 2009 expedition, one of my colleagues in the mm-hmm. Native Guide actually saw the creature. I've seen its tracks, I've seen its handprints, I've heard it call. I know it exists. So those are the two I'll be putting my money into. Other very likely ones are uh, things like the giant anaconda in South America, um, Yeti, uh, various types of, of sea serpents, although because the ocean is so vast, they would be much harder to find. Mm. How about di- uh, how about di- I was going to say dinosaurs? Uh, how about dragons? Are dragons real? Or are they a part of folklore? Is there any proof that dragons ever did exist? Well, both really. <clears throat> um, dragon legends. That's another thing I've, I've written. Uh, another book on uh, dragons more than a myth. It's another mm. one of my books. Dragon legends uh, are incredibly complicated. They're utterly universal. They're found in every single culture on Earth, from the, the, the pygmies in the Congo to the Aborigines to South American Indians to the Chinese and, and everybody in between. Um, and uh, they're, they're also the most ancient and the most widespread of all monsters. Forget about things like demons and vampires and werewolves. They're all mm-hmm. come lately. There are cave paintings of dragons in France going back 25,000 years. So there's something at the bottom of this. This doesn't spring unbidden from our, our own subconscious. Some of them may have been based on the discovery of, of dinosaur bones and the bones of other large extinct animals. Some of the sightings may have been based on encounters with very large crocodiles and snakes. But if you look more closely, there's a, a backbone of sightings in documents like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles and, and, and similar documents in China and Japan records of events where people have seen these things. So what we're dealing with, I think, uh, at the centre of all this, is some kind of large, powerful reptile unknown to science. Now, in the West, we associate dragons with fire. It's only really in Europe, the Middle East, and Hawaii that they're associated with fire. Everywhere else in the world, they're associated with water and rainfall, living in water, having power over water and they're generally serpentine in form, elongated. Uh, so I think it's some sort of a large marine reptile with an elongate form, um, possibly a descendant of the mosasaurs or the Thalatosuchian crocodiles. That may be the backbone of the dragon legend. But there's all sorts of other things uh, in, in this mix as well. There was a giant monotolism called Megalania that was similar, very similar to the Komodo dragon of today, but over three times as long and eight times as heavy. And that lived in Australia. And it's supposed to have died out around 30,000 years ago. But there's part of an ilium, a hip bone, that was found um, a few years back. And that seems to be no older than 200 years. And there are, there are reports today from Australia and New Guinea with immensely big lizards, bigger than anything known to science. Hmm. So where did all these legends originate from? Was it because uh, the, that we as an early society needed an explanation and if we couldn't find one, we made it up? To a certain extent, I think it goes back far, far um, further than that. Mm-hmm. If you cast your mind back, um, imagine the plains of East Africa about three million years ago when the human race or the ancestors of the human race were 
or astrophysicians about uh, four feet tall hairy bipeds living in, in, in on the plains of East Africa. Mm-hmm. They had a lot to worry about. They would have been preyed on by crocodiles and pythons, uh, large raptors like the Marshall Eagle, uh, leopards, lions, hunting dogs, and they'd have had to have competed with other types of primates. There were giant baboons, twice as big as any today. There were other kinds of um, hominid and hominan around. So they would have had a very tough time of it. But if you look at the types of monster mm-hmm. you get again and again, throughout uh, the world. I call this the global monster template. There are certain things you'll find turning up again and again. There are dragons and there's a monster reptile. Mm-hmm. There are monstrous birds. There are monstrous cats. There are monstrous dogs. There are little people and there are giants. And these are all sort of like an analogue of things that would have been competing with or preying on our primitive ancestors. So I think that it's, it's somehow linked to our collective subconscious, of, uh, an idea called fossil memories, mm-hmm. and that's that in certain instincts and memories and fears and things are passed down in our genes. That's why villains wear black or associated with black, because of the primeval fear of the dark. Now, I think that the, the human race as a whole has a gestalt mind, and this is, this is why monsters all over the world to look or act the same it's because it's these ancient fears of, of the creatures we competed against on the plains of East Africa three million years ago is it is it possible Richard that on this planet somewhere hidden by a lost valley or a or a, a dark deep rainforest that there could be dinosaurs pterodactyls like in Jurassic Park there, there, are, there are millions upon millions upon millions of dinosaurs in the world. We call them birds. Hmm. Technically, birds are dinosaurs. Tyrannosaurus rex has more in common with a budgerigar than it does with triceratops. Wow. Birds are feathered dinosaurs. So if you're talking about living dinosaurs, they are birds. Well, Things like the Michaelionbembe, which is reported from <coughs> the Congo rainforest of Africa, mm-hmm. which has a great long neck, a long lashing tail, and it's also living water. Some people have linked this with a sauropod dinosaur, but what they're linking it with is the Victorian view of sauropod dinosaurs, not how we know they are today. Uh, sauropod dinosaurs are long enough herbivores. They didn't live in water. They roamed around on land in herds like elephants or giraffes. The thing in the Congo, whatever it is, spends a lot of time in water. I think it makes more sense that it's some sort of giant monitor lizard rather than uh, a surviving dinosaur. So mm. yes, there are surviving dinosaurs. They're birds. If you're talking about finding a, a, a Tyrannosaurus or a Triceratops in the jungle, it's a, it's a bit of a non-starter. Really? Yeah. How, you know, I, I sometimes wonder, Richard, how many unknown species are there yet to be discovered on this planet? Millions, millions and millions. Most of them will be very small. Right. Most of them will be beetles and uh, other types of insects, mm-hmm. invertebrates. But there are... There, there will be large, spectacular creatures still to be discovered, and some of them will look to us quite monstrous. Um, there's a friend of mine called Charles Paxton, who's a marine biologist, and, and he worked out, uh, using the rate of discovery, uh, he worked out a graph of how many large marine animals he thought were, were left to, to be discovered, and uh, it was well into the 40s, the, the, the amount of species he thinks 
the big species who have left unknown that are roaming the seas. Mm-hmm. And I think he's been very conservative about Where are you going to be going next, uh, Richard, and uh, what do you hope to find? <coughs> well, it all, it's all down to the folding green stuff. It's all oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm hoping next year to go down to Australia and Tasmania to look for the thylacine. It's the emblem of the Centre for Fortean Zoology. We've never looked for it yet. It's the animal, the mystery animal most likely to exist, and we've got a lot of contacts and friends down there. So we're hoping to get out there and get the money together next year. Maybe we'll be going to Lake Feljord in Norway uh, with... Uh, my friends um, Andrew Sanderson and Adam Davis to search for the um, Serpent of Lake Selyord. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm always up for going back to uh, Sumatra for another crack at the Orang Pendek. It, it's all down to what's, uh, uh, what, what funding we can get, what money we can get together. But there's a, a growing interest in, in these sort of things. Um, uh, do you know there's a thing of Kate Bush? I'm sorry? You've heard of Kate Bush? You've heard of the thing of Kate Bush, haven't you? I believe so. Yeah, her latest song is all about the Yeti. It's called Wild Man, and she's written this beautiful song about the Yeti. All right. So there's an interest here in these things. So, so what do the governments of these different countries, uh, how do they react to your request to do an, an expedition in their country looking for an unknown species or to prove that the species does exist? Are, are they cooperative with you? We've never had any trouble for them from them at all. They've really? Never been stopped or questioned or tasseled in any way hmm. by governments. I think uh, uh, my mate Adam Davis has had uh, trouble in the Congo, um, trouble with local officials and, and so forth in the Congo, mainly stopping him to try and get money out of him. Oh, yeah. That's the main thing, yeah. More of that folded green stuff. Yeah. What's the average cost of an expedition? It can differ wildly. It can differ hugely. Uh, when I was in Russia a few years back, the Caucasus mm-hmm. man was in Russia looking for the Almastic. There were uh, four British guys, a Russian guy, two Ukrainians, and a dog. And uh, we were over there for three weeks, and it cost about 800 UK pounds, 1,000 euros. So 800 UK pounds would be something like $15,000. Is that a lot? Uh, not, not at all, no. No way. You and I have to take our final break, my good friend. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today, Richard. Always great talking to you. Continued success uh, with everything that you do. And, I, you know, I'd, I'd love to talk to you one time when you, and, and say, you know what? We proved it. We've got... We've got the, the, uh, the or, you know, the, um, the death worm. We've got the... Um, the orang pendek or we've got bigfoot and if anybody's going to do it i believe it's going to be you so please stand by we'll be back on the other Thanks side of this commercial break as the exxon continues from our studios in hamilton ontario canada with my guest this hour richard freeman his website is www.cfz.org.uk my name is rob mcconnell i'll be back after this break don't go away This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. 
For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Hi, I'm Larry Lawson, host of Paranormal Stakeout. With over 36 years in law enforcement, I have learned a few things. The most important is the proper gathering and preservation of evidence is vital to putting the bad guy behind bars. It's no different in the world of paranormal investigation, whether it's the search for the afterlife, cryptozoology, UFOs, and extraterrestrials. How we gather the evidence, preserve that evidence, and present it to a jury of our peers will make the ultimate difference in proving the existence of worlds and entities that are beyond our imagination. Join me, Larry Lawson, every week on Paranormal Stakeout when, along with my guests, we'll take a journey to prove with indisputable evidence what man has struggled to believe for centuries. Go to xzbn.net for the broadcast schedule and check me out at paranormalstakeout.com. True healing must address four levels, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, for us to live joyful and productive lives. We tend to treat three of the four, leaving the spiritual languishing. If you're tired of the same dysfunctional patterns cropping up in your life, soul balancing is for you. Trixie Phelps, owner and founder of Soul Balancing, is a naturally gifted energy healer trained in numerous esoteric forms, including shamanism. Trixie has created a powerful modality that safely and effectively clears your energetic field. A soul balancing session can remove interference, heal trauma, and restore your hope. Contact Trixie for a life-changing long-distance session today, www.soulbalancing.world. Richard Freeman's my guest this hour, www.cfz.org.uk. I, I would imagine in these hardened economical times, it's much harder for you as a person who's trying to put together an expedition to, to get that all-important all cash. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. The last figure I got wrong, incidentally, I meant um, $1,500, not oh, okay. $1,000. Some difference, yeah. Yeah, yeah but like that, an expedition can range from, from anywhere from 8000 UK pounds to... As, as, as little as 800 UK pounds oh. in, in my particular um, experience, but it, it's very hard to get any kind of funding. Well, how about organizations like the National Geographic Society? Do they do they supply people like yourself with with expedition funding? Well, I, so my first expedition to look for the Naga, the giant snake, was for a documentary for um, the Discovery Channel back mm-hmm. in 2000. But since then, um, not a sausage. Really? My old friend Adam Davis has been with um, with the National Geographic a, a few times, but I haven't. You would think that TV stations would be falling over themselves wanting this stuff. Yeah. But we can never seem to get any funding from them. It's like banging your head against a brick wall. Uh, they're more interested in making lousy soap operas and reality television. Well, you know what? I, I think a major part of the problem is, Richard, uh, that it is so inexpensive for independent production houses today to make a quote-unquote TV show. 
Mm. You know, back in the day, a good camera would cost $30,000. Then you'd need a good sound man. Then you'd need this, that, and the other thing. But today, with all the digitized uh, cameras, like you can actually buy a brand new 3D camera for less than $10,000, video camera. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know what television is like in Canada, but in Britain, a mm-hmm. good 90% of it is dross, absolute dross. It's it's crazy, and uh, the biggest oxymoron that I've seen so far is uh, a new oxymoron is reality TV, because there's nothing on TV that's real. No, no. This is a thing, I don't know if you have it as over, over there, I pray that you don't. There's this mm-hmm. dreadful thing called Big Brother, where they get a bunch of, of proles sitting in a house and yeah. film them doing boring, tedious things. Now, why are they doing that when they could film myself and my colleagues off in a jungle or a desert or a mountain somewhere hunting a living monster? It doesn't matter if we don't find it. Mm-hmm. It's the journey. It's yeah. excitement. It's going places where no Westerner has been before, which I've done on a number of occasions, taking cameras into places that have never been filmed before. This is thrilling stuff, but no one wants to know. I want to know, and that's why I have you on the X-Zone. Richard, it's always Thank a great pleasure much. talking to you, my friend. Continued success, and I look forward to the next time you and I meet here in the X-Zone. But until then, yeah. let our listeners know how they can find out more about you. Yeah, well, you can visit our website, which is www.cfz.org.uk. And if you're interested in the Orang Pendek, I have a new book called Orang Pendek, Sumatra's Forgotten Ape, which is coming out very soon. It's not out yet, but it'll be out in the next few weeks. All right, Richard Freeman, thank you very much for joining us here in the X-Zone. And uh, like I said, look forward to the next time you join us. Take care, my friend. Thanks a lot, Rob. Bye. Bye-bye, sir. Richard Freeman, www.cfz.org.uk. I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news as the X-Zone continues. We're right here from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. <laughs> 